Hello there. You are listening to the MCC Sunday Sermon. We are so glad you could join us. We pray that this message will encourage you, build your faith on your journey with God. Enjoy. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, if you were in Sunday school, is probably a verse at some point you were asked to commit to memory. It'd be a great couple of verses to be able to commit to memory. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this, For we, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. By grace you've been saved through faith. And, and this is not of yourselves. No one can boast about this. This is actually a gift given to you by God, is what Paul writes in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. And then he goes on in Ephesians 2 and chapter and verse 10. And this is actually the scripture that our kids in this term are learning as a part of uh, kids' ministry for Jets and the Heroes program. It's verse 10. Paul goes on and he says, For we are God's masterpiece. Don't you love that? That when God thinks of you, that's the way he describes you. For we are God's masterpiece, created anew in Christ Jesus for the good works which he prepared in advance for us to do. That verse today is going to be the verse that we're honing in on. Verse number 10. For we are God's masterpiece, created anew in Christ Jesus for the good works which he prepared in advance for us to do. I want to speak to us this morning from this subject, prepared beforehand. Prepared beforehand. I love that that Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 is followed by Ephesians 2 verse 10, that God begins, he says, you need to know this, that when God thinks of you, he thinks of you as his masterpiece. One of the things I'm really grateful for, and my dad and my mom are here today, one of the things I'm really grateful for as a kid is, is how embarrassingly proud of us kids my parents were. At the time, I didn't appreciate it so much, but now as an adult, I realize how important it was, and it's something that for Elise and I, we try and replicate with our kids as well, but my dad was embarrassingly proud of us. I remember as a kid going along to Master Painters Association Christmas dinners, and my dad is a painter, he's still a painter to this day, and I remember going to those things and seeing all of the other painters who were in Townsville, and when I'd get there, they'd say, oh, Daniel, Oh, I heard about, and they would start listing all the things I'd done that year. They could tell you all the academic achievements I'd had, whether I'd won the cross country that year or not, what we'd done in basketball that year. They were listing all of the things that had happened that year. It was always a little disconcerting. How do these people know this stuff, right? But of course, we knew how they knew that stuff. It's because my dad wouldn't shut up about it, right? Uh, We would go into the paint store if I was working with dad on the weekends. and, And again, the guy across the counter who was the sales rep would say, Oh, Daniel, Matthew, my brother. Oh, I heard about... And they would start listing all of these things. When my dad would, would, would be leaving church on a Sunday or when he was coming back from doing a quote or he would always come home and say the same thing. He's like, I just could not get away. Those people just would not be quiet. And we always say, Dad, we all know that's a lie. They were trying to get away from you for several hours, but you just kept on talking. But we could see it from a long way off, right? Because if dad was talking to somebody, it may be somebody in a coffee shop or it might be somebody in the street or it might be someone who's doing a quote for, that, that if he stopped and he reached for his wallet, he wasn't getting money out. If you know my dad, you know he's very generous, but he wasn't getting money out. He, he was getting his wallet out because there would be a photo. It's been replaced these days by photos of grandkids, but there's a photo in his wallet of us three kids. And, and, and we knew if he was reaching for his wallet, there goes another hour and 45 minutes. Because he would go through and he would say, this is my son Daniel, and this is, this is Matthew, his brother, and, and this, is our, this is our little girl, Laura. And, and he would start telling people stories about us. And as a kid, it was embarrassing, but, but it was that he was embarrassingly proud of us. 
Do you know, when it comes to God, the same thing is true, that God is embarrassingly proud of you. That of all the words that God could use to be able to describe you, he describes you this way. He says that you are his masterpiece. No person with a masterpiece ever gets a masterpiece and then hides it away in a cupboard or under a bed, do they? No, if you've got a masterpiece, you put it on display, you want everybody to be able to see it. And usually if you've got a masterpiece or you've been into a home where someone has spent an extravagant amount of money on a piece of art, one of the things that's true is that they'll put it in a pride of place and when they show you the piece of art, they'll tell you the story about the artist and about the particular thing about that painting or that sculpture. And when God describes you and I, he describes us in those same terms. Maybe it wasn't your teachers who described you as a masterpiece. Maybe it wasn't a past employer who described you as a masterpiece. Maybe it wasn't some other relationships in your life that described you as a masterpiece. Maybe they described you as a piece of work. But when God describes you, when God describes you, he describes you in those terms. That God describes you as his masterpiece created anew in Christ Jesus for the good works that he prepared long ago. That that verse of scripture ought to fill our hearts with confidence, the kind of confidence that Joe had this morning when he preached. That it ought to fill our hearts with confidence that God thinks of you and I as his masterpiece created anew in Christ Jesus for good works. That Ephesians 2.10 is telling us this, that we're created by God on purpose. It's not by accident. It's not by accident that you're a part of this church. It's not by accident that you're here today. It's not by accident that you're sucking oxygen on planet earth. It's not by accident God has created you on purpose. But not only has he created you on purpose, he's created you for a purpose. That a purpose that he has prepared in advance for you. That you and I are prepared by God beforehand. And if that's true, if God has a purpose and a plan for our lives that he's prepared beforehand, then that changes some things about the way that we live our lives. That, that, that if our purpose and our plan is prepared by God beforehand, that, that it ought to change a few things. This is the first thing it should change. Number one, it should, it should change this. If are prepared by God beforehand on purpose and for a purpose, then it means that every moment matters. I want you to imagine for a minute that next Saturday morning, someone comes to your door and interrupts your breakfast by knocking on the door and, and, and when you open it, you realize that this person who's standing in front of you is carrying a briefcase, they're, they're fully suited up and, and, and they're wearing a top hat. And you realize as they open their mouth and introduce themselves that they're not from around here, these guys are English. And they proceed to be able to explain to you that, that actually you have fallen heir to a great fortune because there's a great uncle you never knew about who has actually died and left in his will the full sum of his estate worth several billion dollars. It's all yours. It's an uncle you didn't even know that you had, but he's left everything to you. And after exchanging a few details, you realize this is not a mistake. You have just fallen heir to an incredible fortune you never knew you were going to get. There's just one stipulation in the will. That, that for each day in your bank account, you'll be transferred the fortune in portions. You'll be transferred at the beginning of each day $86,400. You can spend that money however you like. But, but, but at the end of that day, whatever portion of that $86,400 you haven't spent, it'll be wiped and the next morning you'll wake up and in your bank account will be a fresh $86,400. Who's up for that deal? Of course, you'd be ecstatic, right? That each day... The only stipulation is you're heir to a great fortune, but each day you can only spend 
$86,400. I would find some inventive ways to spend $86,400 if that was true, right? Here's the truth. There's probably not going to be someone coming to your front door next Saturday morning to let you know that they're transferring a grand fortune to you that you've got $86,400 to spend each day. But you know, in each day, you've got 86,400 seconds. And as finite as money is, so is time. That with each day, we get 86,400 seconds and we can spend them however we want. And at the end of that day, whatever we haven't used gets passed over and the next day begins with 86,400 seconds. That if you and I are prepared beforehand, if God has a great plan and purpose for our lives, then it ought to change the way we see the time that God's given us. That every moment matters. Because the time God's given to us, it's not by accident, it's not incidental. I've said this before, but when Esther, when Mordecai says to Esther in the Old Testament, when Mordecai encourages Esther and says, maybe you were born, Esther, for such a time as this, this is his plea. And then everybody put it on their women's conferences for decades to follow. You were born for such a time as this, just like Esther. That's the dumbest quote ever, right? Because of course you were born for such a time as this. If God wanted you to be born at a different time, you would have been. The fact that you were born in the time that you were born is because God intended it. He had a plan and a purpose. And so when you're born, where you're born, even though you might not be fully aware of it, God has a plan in that. That also means that he's given you the time. That every athlete knows that you have to make the most of every moment, right? In every opportunity and every second of the game. That every soldier entering the battlefield is alert because every moment matters. That there's no practice round. This is the real thing. And so a significant life is not made up of just a few significant moments. It's actually about living every moment as if it's significant. Living every moment as if it matters, you know, the truth is, is that you and I don't need more time. We have all the time we'll ever need to achieve the things God's put in our hearts to be able to do. That's a challenge, right? Because we're busy people. And we've got lots of things that we do. But you and I actually have all the time we need if we would just see our time as being given to us by God to achieve his plan and his purposes. We have all the time we need, but we may need to refresh our priorities. That we have all the time we need because think about this, how misleading would it be of God to tantalize you with a dream in your heart only to deny you knowing you'll never have the time to achieve it, right? And so if we're prepared by God beforehand, then that means that every moment matters. And so what is it that God's asking you to do? How are you using your time to be able to bring God glory? If somebody was to spend a whole day with you, from sunup to sundown, what would they learn about you and I, about what's important and what's a priority in our life? What would you change about the way you lived if every moment mattered? What would your schedule say about your priorities even this week? If we're prepared by God beforehand for great plans and purposes that he has for our life, then firstly, it changes the way we see our time because every moment matters. But here's the second thing it does. It helps us to see that every relationship is a responsibility. If God's prepared us beforehand for good works, that's what the scripture says, which God's prepared for us in advance, then it means that every moment, right? Every moment matters, but every relationship is a responsibility. Think about this for a minute. What about if each of the relationships that are in your life right now are actually placed there by God? What about if it's not incidental 
the colleagues that you have in your workplace? What about if it's not accidental where you ended up living? What about if it's not by coincidence that, that your kid attends that school and you've connected with those particular parents? What about if the relationships that are in your life right now are actually placed there by God? Because if we're prepared by God for good works beforehand, that then every moment matters, but every relationship's a responsibility. But one of the things that's true about God is that God is relational. Another thing that's true about God is that God is generational, which means that God's never just looking to a person. God is looking through a person. Wouldn't you love to meet the young guy who, who shared his faith with Billy Graham? Because, of course, many people came to faith as a result of Billy Graham and the evangelistic crusades that he led. But, but there was somebody before Billy Graham who shared their faith with him. Which means God's never just looking to a person. God looks through a person. Right? He's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Why? Because God sees things generationally. God's not just looking at Joe at 13. God's looking at Joe 20 years from now and what his kids might be doing in bringing glory to God, right? That, that, that God looks way further down the track than we could possibly imagine. If, we, if you think about this just for a minute, right? What were you doing 10 years ago? What were you doing 10 years ago? Where, where were you even in your own relationship with God? What, what was it that you were up to? What, what were you involved in? Now fast forward 10 years and think, all right, what, what, what could be 10 years from now? I found this to be true in my life, that, that I overestimate what can be achieved in one year and grossly underestimate what could be achieved in 10. In 10 years' time, Jonathan is 19 years old and driving. That's only 10 years away. Sophie will be a teenager and I will have a shotgun so that no teenage boys are trying to date her. If we're prepared by God beforehand, then it means that every relationship's a responsibility. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That when God speaks to Abraham, right, about inheriting a land, about going to a place he knows not of, that God is speaking that to Abraham, right? But God already has in mind Joshua, right? Because God lives outside of time, he can see not just to a person, but through them. That those relationships that he's placed, so God's speaking to Abraham about being the father of a great nation and about many, many people. Do you know, in Abraham's lifetime, he has two sons, Ishmael and, and, and Isaac. The great nation that he sees is actually only two sons. Uh, in fact, in his lifetime, he's, he's a grandfather. His, his son, right, Isaac, has two sons, Esau and Jacob. The great nation that God promises to Abraham looks like a handful of boys, Right? But, but of course, God's not simply looking to Abraham. God's looking through Abraham. He's talking to Abraham about being the father of a great nation, but God can already see a great nation, right? He, he's talking to, to Abraham about land, but, but of course, it'll be Joshua who actually inherits that land because God can see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then Joseph and then 400 years of slavery in Egypt and then Moses being risen up to be able to deliver Israel out and then getting out of Egypt and then into the desert and then Joshua taking them into the promised land and conquering those, those nations and those places in order to be able to take possession of what God had already promised all the way back here. Why? Because God's never just looking to a person, he's looking through a person. 
And so how would that change the way we view the relationships in our life if we were to think, I want to make each of those relationships count? Where God places you is incredibly important. It's not by accident that God has placed this church in this community. That God has a special purpose for us to be able to be the answer in, in this location. Do you remember the show, um, Thank God You're Here? It's a little bit old now, right? But it was, it was an Aussie um, TV show and it was an impromptu thing where different comedians or, or person, TV personalities were sort of dressed in a costume, sort of off stage, and then there'd be a scene that was set that they weren't aware of, and they'd come through the door, and as they came through the door, they'd have to impromptu, like, just roll with what was happening. And for each person, as they walked through the door, the minute they walked in, someone would say, oh, thank God you're here, and then the skit would begin. And this person's trying to like work out, all right, what's going on? What am I wearing? What am I going to say? And everybody else is scripted. Everybody else knows what's going on, but that person doesn't know. I reckon that ought to be true of you and I. That, that as we stumble into different situations, that people go, thank God that you're here, right? That the conversation that I had on Friday afternoon should not be unusual. That should be very usual. That, that actually people would say, do you know what? I just felt like I was led to have this conversation with you. And, and that people would say, man, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really grateful that God placed you guys here at this particular time, that if we're prepared beforehand, then every relationship is a responsibility. Do you remember MSN Messenger? Some of us remember MSN Messenger. I'm coming up to 20 years high school reunion. Oh, okay, well, I feel like that's... Some of you are like, high school? What? It's because they didn't have high schools, did they? No, Sorry. Right? But one of the things that was MSN Messenger, for those of us who are of that particular era, who've all got little kids now, was the, was the tagline that just about every uh, teenage girl put on their uh, messenger, which was, uh, live each moment like it's your last. Dance like no one's watching. Sing like you're tone deaf. I, I can't remember what the statement was, but live each moment like it's your last. It's actually a very selfish way to live, isn't it? To live each moment like it was your last. I wonder how it would change us if we lived each moment like it was somebody else's last. I wonder how that might change the way we view those relationships. If you and I are prepared by God beforehand, then that means that every moment matters. It means that every relationship is a responsibility entrusted to us by God. Here's the third one. It means that every obstacle is an opportunity. If you and I are prepared by God for great plans and purposes that he's actually put in place well before you and I were ever aware of them, then it means that every obstacle that we face is actually an opportunity. Thomas Edison famously said after people said, you man, you've, you've had a lot of mistakes in inventing the light bulb. He said, I've not failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that won't work. I love that quote by Edison. That, that many people are so afraid of failure that at the first sign of an obstacle or, or a difficulty, they give up. But if you and I are prepared by God for a great plan and purpose, we can't afford to buckle at the knee at the first failure. We've just got to keep on getting up and finding new ways to be able to do it better than we did it before. That, that we can't be afraid of failure. They, they say football players, right? That, that the really great football players, players have very short memories because they'll throw a pass that gets intercepted or they'll do something that there was a mistake and, and then two seconds later, they'll have to pay, play that same thing again. They'll have to make that pass again. And so the really great football players, they make a mistake, they dust themselves off, and they keep on going. They don't stay there wallowing in that past mistake. They've got a short memory. I think that ought to be true of people of faith. 
That you know what? That there's things that happen and there's discouragement that comes, but we ought to be quick to, to deal with that and then pick ourselves up and to keep on going. Sometimes it's not the fear of failure. Sometimes the, the obstacle is, is our own personal pain. Sometimes it's just that the obstacle is pain and we'd rather stay in a place of comfort. You know, the truth is, is that of all the obstacles we face, it's not, the, it's not the things that happen around us that are the real obstacles. I've found for me that the real obstacles are the ones that are actually right in here, right? It's not a lack of finance or this particular thing or that particular... They're not the obstacles. The real obstacles that are difficult to overcome are, are the things that actually reside in here. The, the, the fear of failure or, or perhaps the, the, the fear of, of, of pain and wanting to be able to stay comfortable. The truth is, is that pain is a classroom for growth. I've never met a person who's been really successful in a particular area that hasn't had endured some pain to get there. Never. Of all the people I've ever met who've ever done anything particularly significant in an area or, or in an enterprise, the, 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 each of those people have got a story about how they got there and it was a story where pain for them and discouragement and difficulty was actually a classroom for their own growth. And so sometimes it's the obstacles that are, that are outside. Sometimes it's the obstacles that are inside. But, but you've got to find the courage to have another go, to see the obstacle and, and, and not in the light of a past failure, but to be able to see that obstacle in the light of a brand new opportunity. If you and I are prepared by God beforehand, then, then every moment matters. That's true. That, that every relationship's a responsibility, but, but it also means... It also means that every obstacle is an opportunity. Think about it in the life of King David. That David is a 13-year-old boy. That Samuel comes to Jesse's house, Jesse's his father, and says, I'm going to anoint the next king of Israel from amongst your sons. And so Jesse lines up all seven of his sons. He leaves the eighth one out in the field. That's David. And so Samuel the prophet comes to be able to anoint the kings and, and he sees Eliab and he thinks, man, this guy looks like he'd make a great king. Like he's strapping and strong. He looks confident. And, 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 so, and so he goes to go and anoint him and God says, no, that's not the one. Goes through all seven brothers until eventually God says to Samuel, he says, don't look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance. I look at the heart. And so, and so Samuel says, have you got, have you got any other sons? It's like, there's, is there one hiding? Because God said no to all seven of these. Is, is there an eighth one? And Jesse says to him, oh, oh there's, there's David, uh, but king, he's not king material. And Samuel says, no, 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 go and send for him. We're not going to sit down until he comes. When David comes, God says, this is the son. And, he, and he's anointed in the presence of his brothers to be king. He's 13. Probably looked a lot like Joe, right? He's anointed in the presence of his brothers. And, and, and for you and I, there'd be this temptation, right? If that was to happen to go, ha, huh, see guys? You guys aren't kings, I am, right? That, that actually David might be thinking, all right, now I'm anointed to be king. What happens next? Do they give me like some gowns? Do I, do I get a crown now? Um, do I get to choose the scepter? Like the length of the scepter, is that important? Like if I, if I got a throne, do you want me to pick out which throne? Because I've got some particular interest in the different kinds of thrones that you might be able to manufacture, one that you know, sort of suits my personality. And David's anointed in the presence of his brothers and then he's sent straight back out to the field to go and tend to the sheep. That's actually what happens. I actually wonder, for many of us, if, if we were in the same scenario, if we'd actually ever realise that God potential. Because David, you can imagine, had every obstacle thrown in his way. You imagine his brothers swallowed that real easy? That the little runt of the litter is going to be the king? You reckon there was some um, hazing that was done by the older brothers for David? Do you think there was maybe some rubbing it in 
right? And making his life extra difficult while he looked after the sheep. Oh, the great king of Israel. Can you go scoop up that uh, stuff that's out in the field? The truth is that's, that's very likely. If you don't see that as likely, you definitely never had a brother, right? That's entirely likely. David's anointed to be king in front of his brothers and then he gets sent back out into the field. You know, when David goes to meet Goliath, that's not a great God moment. That's his dad says to him, hey, David, stop mucking around with the sheep. I need to take some cheese to your brothers and to their commander. That, that actually what David is asked to do is to run an errand. I wonder if we're in the same position whether we would have said, uh, Dad, do you realize who you're talking to here? I'm the next king of Israel. You want me to run cheese to my brothers? Haven't we got a servant who can do that? That's not what the Bible says David does. David, instead, he puts the sheep in the care of another person. He says, sure, Dad, I can do that. And he takes the cheese to his brothers, and it's that incidental act that leads him down to the front lines of Israel where there's this giant who's mouthing off about God and about Israel. And David says, isn't anyone going to do anything about this? No one else will do it. I'll do it. And David kills Goliath and and rises to prominence in all of Israel because now everybody knows about this kid who's been living on the backside of the desert, right? And none of it would have happened unless he was willing to run cheese to his brothers. Isn't that interesting? I wonder if sometimes we see obstacles as being insignificant or not important, and so we sort of dismiss them or we say no, but when actually that's the very thing that's going to lead to that plan and purpose God has for our life. That that actually it's sometimes in the insignificant and in the incidental. That actually is God setting us up. Because here's the truth, no significant moment in our life ever comes dressed with a bow on it. It generally looks like something that's uncomfortable or that's difficult or that's hard or or, or that might make us uh, feel a level of insecurity. And yet it's often those things that lead to the really significant things. You know, what's interesting for Edison is Edison obviously takes 10,000 attempts to actually be able to make a light bulb. After making the light bulb, they finally worked it out. They fashioned one light bulb. It was a team of about 13 men it took to be able to make one light bulb. It took them about 24 hours working around the clock to be able to produce the first light bulb. Well, having made the first one and tested it and it worked, it was needed to go to the patency office. Well, all the guys who'd been working on the light bulb had just spent the last 24 hours awake making and fashioning this one light bulb. And so they gave it to a young boy who was a helper in the laboratory. And as he was walking up the steps, so conscious that he's holding something so precious, right? And so focused on, on the light bulb, he, he missteps on one of the steps and he falls and he breaks the light bulb. It's a true story. He breaks the light bulb on the way to the patency office. And he has to come back down the stairs and say to Edison, I'm sorry, I broke it. Well, it takes them another 24 hours. All the guys working on it around the clock, another 24 hours, they produce another light bulb. And what's interesting in the story is that Edison gives the light bulb back to the same kid. He doesn't take it there himself. He doesn't give the task to another person. He gives it to the exact same young guy who'd broken the first one. Isn't that what God is like with us? That even when we've made mistakes and even when there's been obstacles and even when there's been different failures, that God still says, no, 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 I've got a great plan for you. I know how this worked last time, but, but I'm trusting you. I'm putting it back into your hands. And like Edison did for that young boy, God does for you and I. If you and I are prepared by God beforehand, then that means that every moment matters and that every relationship is a responsibility and every obstacle is an opportunity. And finally, it means that every challenge is a choice. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, There are not great men, 
Only great challenges which ordinary men are forced by circumstances to meet. Isn't that true? There are not great men, only great challenges which ordinary men are forced by circumstances to meet. Corrie ten Boom, who survived the Nazi war camps of the Second World War, once said that when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and trust the engineer. That, that if God has a plan and a purpose for you and I, that then that means for us that actually every challenge is a choice for me to be able to trust God. That just because it gets dark, it doesn't mean that we tear up the ticket and we jump off the train and say, this isn't working, and, and, and jump. No, 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 no. We, we sit still and we trust the engineer. We trust God that he's got a plan in this because he's got a great plan and a purpose for our lives. Isn't that what Jeremiah 29, 11 says? He's got a great plan not to harm us, Right? He's got a great plan for us. And so we get to see that every challenge is actually a choice. Uh, several years ago, there was a well-known television circus show that developed this Bengal tiger act. Uh, this one guy would get into the, the cage and with a whip and a chair would begin to put the tigers, these Bengal tigers, through their paces. Uh, like the rest of the show, the show was actually done live before a studio audience. And one evening, the tiger trainer went into the cage with several of the tigers to do this routine performance. That The door was closed and it was locked behind him and the spotlights lit up the cage and, and in the middle of the performance, something unthinkable happened. As the audience watched in suspense, there was a slight power outage in the studio and all power was lost. The guy was left in the cage where the tigers could see him, but he couldn't see the tigers. It took about 30 seconds for the, for the producers of the show to be able to get power back onto the lights in the studio. And all the while that the guy stood in the cage, not being able to see the Bengal tigers, but the Bengal tigers, because of their eyesight, being able to see him, cracking his whip and moving his chair and going through the routine. Well, eventually the lights came back on and, and the audience looked and, and the guy's still in there. He's okay because they weren't quite sure what they'd see when the lights came back on. Interviewed later, the, the performer was asked how he felt, knowing that the tigers could see him, but he couldn't see them. He admitted the chilling fear of the situation. But he pointed out that the tigers didn't know that he couldn't see them. He said, I just kept cracking my whip and talking to them. I kept doing the things I always do until the lights came back on. And isn't that true sometimes for us as well? That sometimes we have to feel the fear, but just do it anyway. That sometimes we just have to go with what we know. That the lights might be out, but, but I know how to pray. I'm just going to keep on praying, cracking that whip, and using that chair. Do you know what? I don't feel like worshiping God right now, and, and, and everything around me feels like it's a bit dark, but I'm just keep cracking the whip, and just I know how to do that. Do you know what? I don't feel like I've got a lot of faith right now, but I know I can go to the Bible, and the Bible's going to help me put some faith back out on the inside to begin to buoyancy in my I'm just going to keep cracking the whip and keep moving the chair. Sometimes in life, you'll find yourself in situations that are a real challenge. And in the middle of that challenge, there is a choice. Either you will fear or you'll place your faith in God. That you'll either fear or you'll begin to trust. And sometimes in those moments, right, even as Angela shared this morning as she was emceeing, that, that, that um, rejoice in the Lord. Bless the Lord, I tell myself. Why did David say that? Because there's times when we don't feel like doing that. Do you know I've found in my life that the times I least feel like praying, maybe you found this too, the times you least feel like praying, aren't they the times that you most need to? 
Isn't it true that the times that you least feel like worshiping God are actually the times that you most need to? They just need to begin to do the things you know how to do, right? Even if the lights are off, just crack the whip and just use the chair. Just keep doing what you know how to be able to do. Sometimes that's a difficult thing because it feels like, God, you're silent in the midst of that. You ever had a season like that? We felt like, God, I'm doing everything I know how to do, right? But it feels like heaven is silent. There's someone sharing with me many years ago. They said, you know, in a test, what does the teacher do? Well, they doesn't seem like they do much at all. They kind of sit there silently. He said, yes, that's the point. That in a test, sometimes heaven might be quiet because it's a test. And in the test, it's not the teacher who does the talking. It's the student who gets the opportunity to be able to show what have you learned? What do you understand? Right? And so I want to encourage you. Maybe you're facing a challenge right now and you've done everything you know how to be able to do. Right? I want to encourage you, don't give up. Continue to trust in the Lord. Come on, don't give up. Keep cracking the whip. Keep using the chair, right? Don't stop praying. Don't give up on God. No, no, keep doing what you know to do. Because even when heaven is silent, God is still in control. As the worship team comes back, we're going to finish in just a moment. This is my last thought here this morning. You know, you can't take one verse of Scripture just on its own. You've got to read each verse of Scripture together. And then not just read those verses together or those chapters together, but you've got to read those books together. You've got to take all of Scripture and you've got to measure it with all of Scripture. And that's hard to do in 30 minutes, right, in a service. But, but this is true. That In just those three verses that we read this morning, Paul says a couple of different things. He says, by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's a gift given to you by God. And in the very next breath, in verse 10, he says, For we are God's masterpiece, created anew in Christ Jesus, for the good works which he prepared in advance for us to do. So which one is it? That Paul says on one hand, by grace you've been saved through faith, it's not by works. By the way, you're God's masterpiece, created anew in Christ Jesus, for good works. So is it good works or isn't it good works? You know, people who aren't familiar with the Bible say, oh, well, you see, the Bible's full of all of these, like, all these things that don't sort of align, all of these contradictions. You should not believe all the things that you read on YouTube or read on the internet here on YouTube. That actually what Paul is doing, this is called the Paulinian paradox. That actually oftentimes in Scripture, when you see things that are like that, right, by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not by works. By the way, you're saved by God for good works. That, that these aren't contradictions. They're two edges of the same path. That Paul is shooting this edge of the path. And he's shooting this edge of the path. And, and if you walk between those two things, you'll walk on a path that's safe. But if you start venturing out beyond those, you'll start finding yourself in some pretty rugged territory. By grace, you've been saved through faith. It's not by works. That's one edge of the path. But the other edge of the path is now having been saved by God, we go to work for the salvation of others. While it's correct to say that works have nothing to do with earning our salvation, it's, it's incorrect to say that, that works have nothing to do with salvation at all. William Barclay, the theologian, put it this way. He said, all the good works in the world cannot put us right with God. But once we've been put right with God, there's something radically wrong with the Christianity which does not issue in good works. In other words, 
Good works can never earn our salvation. They can never make us right with God. But there's something radically wrong if salvation doesn't produce in us good works. We can't earn God's love, but, but we can and we must show how grateful we are for God's love by seeking with our whole hearts to live the kind of life that will bring joy to the heart of God. Here's the point. There's nothing you and I could do to make God love us more. There's nothing we could do to earn our salvation. That's not by works. That's a gift from God. But now, having become a recipient of God's grace and mercy, we go to work, not for our own salvation, but for the salvation of others. That there's absolutely no work that we can do to earn our salvation. But now that we've received salvation, we get to go to work for the salvation of others. That there are good works that God has prepared for us. That's what the scripture says, right? There are good works that God's prepared beforehand. And they have nothing to do with our salvation, but they might have a lot to do with the salvation of others. I want to encourage you in this because this is a responsibility for all of us to rise into. If there is a plan and a purpose that God has for our lives, then the time we've been allotted is really important. It's not to be mismanaged. It's not to be misused. That the relationships that God's placed in our life is not to be mismanaged. It's not to be misused. That that actually, the fact that we're all here and a part of this church at this particular period in time is actually a bit of evidence about what God's asking us to do as a church. Who would put this eclectic group together? God. Because He has a special plan and a purpose. He's prepared it beforehand. Right? It means that the challenges and the obstacles we face, we get to see them in light of God's ability. Because you and I have been entrusted by God to, with the responsibility of going to work for the salvation of other people. Not, not for God to be happy with us, but so that other people can come to know the grace that we have received. Think about your own journey. That there was somebody who talked to you about Jesus. That, that there was someone who invited you to church. That, that there was someone who who said hello to you that very first time when you walked in. Maybe the first time you were invited along. Maybe the first time someone talked to you about Jesus, you gave them a gobful. But they didn't give up. They persisted. How grateful are you that they persisted and they talked to you about God? They just didn't take no as the first answer. Think about that first time you came along to church and how different that was and how that felt. That someone gave up their Sunday morning sleeping to set the chairs out and to make the place tidy and ready for you to arrive so that you'd feel welcomed. That someone gave in a Thanksgiving offering and purchased a chair that you were able to sit in and be comfortable during the service. That someone faithfully tithed and that helped to be able to pay the power bill so that you could sit in a room that was comfortable when you came in and you could see the other people that you were talking to. That someone sat behind the sound desk like Paul has done this morning and, and operated the sound desk so that you could hear what was going on in the service. At the end of the service, there were people that were there who, who didn't just talk to the people that they knew, but they went out of their way to say hello to you because you felt like you didn't know anyone, but they were really friendly. They were really including. Come on, I can keep going. Think about the person who gave up their home once a fortnight to be able to host a connect group that you went along to that really helped you in your own journey of faith. They weren't doing any of that stuff to be able to earn their salvation. They were already right with God, but they were doing that so that you might Come on, our good works don't save us. But now having become recipients of God's grace, isn't it also true that we have the responsibility to roll up our sleeves and to go to work for the salvation of others? I want to read this to you. This is Ephesians 2, verses 7 to 10. It's in the message version, which is just in really plain language. It's the same thing we've read, but in really common vernacular. 
This actually, by the way, is the same verse of Scripture that our kids are doing in kids' ministry right now. This Ephesians 2.10. Listen to these words. Now God has us where He wants us, with all the time in this world and the next to show grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. Saving is all His idea and all His work. All we do is trust Him enough to let Him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play the major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we had done the whole thing. No, we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and saving. He creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join Him in the work He does, the good work He's gotten ready for us to do, work we had better be doing. Let me read you that verse one more time. He created each of us by Christ Jesus to join Him in the work He does the good work he's gotten ready for us to do, work we had better be doing. Would you stand to your feet this morning as we finish this service and pray? The end of the service we're going to put up on the screen, the, um, the This Is MCC Dinner graphic. And, and on it is a QR code. It'll be up in a minute. And on it's a QR code. And I, I want to encourage you, if you haven't registered for this dinner, to register for it. Because part of what I'm talking about today is actually getting more involved. That, that night on, on Tuesday the 30th, it, it'll be a fun night, as the last one was as well. But it'll be a fun night. It'll be a two-course dinner. and There'll be a kid's party so that kids are also looked after so that mum and dad can both be there. But, but ultimately, this night is for people who are at that point of saying, do you know what? This is going to be my church. I want to get more involved. And I'd have some questions if I was joining a church. I want to know about the vision and the values and the history. There's a lot to be celebrated there for our church. I, I want to know about, in terms of governance, like how does that work for you guys? I, I want to know about money. What, what do you do in terms of financial accountability? What, what do you guys do with money? But there would be questions that I would have. And then having answered those questions, if I felt like God was leading me, then the next thing is I want to roll up my sleeves and I want to become involved. If this is your first time at this church, no stress. But if you've been coming for some time and you're like, do you know what? I want this to be my church. I want to get involved. And maybe you've been coming for the last six months. Maybe you've been here for the last six years. But you're saying, I want this to be my church. Then what I'm asking for each person to do is to live actually what Paul said. And to say, do you know what? We're going to roll up our sleeves and we're going to get involved. And it might be in different areas of ministry. It might be on teams. It might be leading connect groups. It might be in ministries that happen through the center during the week. It might be, it might be as simple as saying, do you know what? My next step would be just becoming regular in church. I'm going to be here to be able to meet people who are coming along to church for their first time. Not just because I need to be in church, so that's true, because I want to be here to meet the people that God's sending to us. I don't want them to be sitting on their own. I'm going to be here to welcome them. Even if no one else does, I will be here to do that. To roll up my sleeve and say, do you know what, this is going to be my church. I'm going to commit. I'm going to commit to being involved. I'm going to commit to being faithful when it comes to giving because this is my church. I'm taking responsibility. And if you're at that point, then I'd really encourage you to be there on that night because I think it'll really help to make that decision informed for you. That's my heart's desire. That's my prayer. Man, what could God do with a group of people like that? You know, with 120 people in an upper room, he turned the whole world upside down and started the church. It was 120 people. That's all it was. What could God do through us if each one of us with just one heart and one accord would say, God, use me. God, I'm so grateful for the salvation I've received. God, help me to be a part of the answer for somebody else's life as well. Use us in that way. 
what an incredible thing that would be for each one of us. And I know there's many people who are in part of just doing that right now, but this is a call for all of us, for all of us to step into the plans and purposes that God has, which are greater than we could possibly imagine. Just with every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to pray for us today. God, I thank you this morning for every single person who's in this room. God, greatly loved by you. And Lord, I pray today that God, this word would be sealed in our heart. Holy Spirit, I pray that even this week, you'd bring it back to our remembrance. That God, even this week, that we'd be, there'd be something from today's message that just might rattle around in our own heart. That God, it wouldn't let us go. That God, you are raising up an army of people here. That God, you are doing something incredible. God, the likes of which, it's a brand new thing. And so God, I pray that you would bless each one. God, you put your favour upon them. In Jesus' mighty name. Just with every head bowed and every eye closed, just before we finish, I just want to invite every person who's here this morning just to pray one simple prayer. I want to ask you a question this morning. We finish all of our services this way. So today's not unusual, but I do want to ask you one question. I believe it's the most important question a person can be asked. I want to ask you today, are you right with God? I don't mean were you christened as a child. I don't mean do you believe in God. I don't mean would you describe yourself as a spiritual person. What I really mean is this. Has there been a moment in your life when you stopped and you asked for God's forgiveness and you invited Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your life? You may be here this morning and maybe there's never been a moment like that. In just a moment, I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And if that's you, I want this morning as we pray this prayer, I want you to say it with your mouth, but believe it in your heart as we pray this prayer. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believing that God raised him from the dead, that in that moment you shall be saved. That's the prayer I'd love to lead you in today. Or maybe today you're away from God, but you need to rededicate your life to Him. Again, I want to lead you in this prayer. I want you to mean it as we pray it out loud. We're all going to pray it together. Just with every head bowed and every eye closed, would you pray this prayer with me this morning with those who are praying this prayer either for the first time or meaning it, rededicating their life? Pray, dear Jesus, I come to you this morning and I realize that I need you. Jesus, I ask you to forgive me of all of my mistakes. Jesus, wash my heart completely clean. Jesus, I thank you that you love me, that you proved it when you died on the cross for my sin. Jesus, from this morning on, I want to live for you. I want to be a Christian. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. God, I pray for each person today who maybe prayed that prayer for the very first time. God, meaning it in their heart and accepting you as their Lord and Savior. That God, today they might know your reality in their life. That God, today they might leave here. God, encourage, maybe even lie to them when they walked in. That God, they would know your reality. In Jesus' mighty name, everybody said, Amen. Amen. Thank you once again for joining us. Feel free to contact us on our Facebook, our website, and jump on our Instagram at mcc.church. Also, make sure to rate and review as well as share. Finally, from all the team at MCC, have a blessed day. And until next time, bless you.